Next week is Father's Day. And I don't believe that since we have been here as your pastors that I preached a Father's Day message straight at our dads. So next week's the week. And uh, we're going to have a special uh, gift for our dads. So let's try to fill the place up next week. Bring all your dads and grandpas. And, and uh, next week I'm not going to be your pastor. I'm just going to be a dad. Is that okay? And so I'll tell you in advance that... Uh, you know, it, it's going to be a great day. I, I, I kind of, you know, Ryan did such a good job building up the barbecue uh, meal after service this morning. I, I kind of know what it feels like to be an hors d'oeuvre. Uh, <laughs> because you have to have me before you can have the meal now. So, <laughs> But we are, we are going to conclude our sermon series this morning. I say conclude because... Two weeks from today, we're going to begin a new sermon series entitled, Can You Only Imagine? And rather than being a new sermon series, it's just going to be kind of a continuation of what we've been talking about, only with a different, different focus. So I pray that you can be here for all of those messages. I, I believe the Spirit of God's getting ready to fall. I, I really do. Uh, we, we have revival scheduled for September 16 through 19, and I believe that we're going to have a revival of the Spirit of God moving in our midst before then. And so when that time comes, it's just going to be a, a great experience with Pastor Phil Corbett and uh, looking forward to having you meet him and get acquainted with him and most of all, uh, just experiencing whatever the Holy Spirit wants us to experience. Uh, the town atheist, he was a... He was a good guy. He just wasn't a believer. It was a small town, and everybody knew that he was an atheist. Wasn't interested in church. They only had one church in the whole town. And that church had become more of a, a social club. No decisions for Jesus being made. No people coming into the kingdom uh, through faith in Christ. But one day, that one lone church in that little town caught on fire. Physical fire. And the whole town began running toward the, the church to help extinguish the flames. And in the midst of the crowd that was running toward the church to extinguish the flames was the atheist. And as they were on their way to the church, someone hollered out to him. They said, hey, this is something new for you. First time we've ever seen you running to church. And his response to them was very good, I think. He said, this is the first time I've ever seen the church on fire. <laughs> Do you get my drift? Well, don't worry. If the church was truly on fire, we wouldn't announce it in the bulletin or by way of a sermon. But I'm praying that the day will come and soon that we can announce that this church is officially on fire for God. Uh, I, my hope is that our community uh, around us will never be able to say that they haven't seen a church on fire. And I, I just believe that TFC ought to be that church. Unfortunately, though, many of us have had the sad experience of being in a cold 
dead church. Uh, no fire. Someone stands to sing and it's quite obvious that they're just going through the motions rather than their heart being in it. Invitations are given to come forward in, for prayer or to acknowledge Jesus in a, in a, in a public profession of faith and, and no one ever really expects anything to happen. Have you ever visited a church like that? Ever been a, a member of a church like that? Well, Jesus warned the church, and this is not my text, but Jesus warned the church in Revelation 2. It was the church of Ephesus. That he would remove their candlestick if they didn't repent of losing the love that they once had for him. You see, that's what depicts a church that has grown cold, a church that has lost its fire. They've lost their love and their passion. For Jesus. Those in churches whose focus is on what they used to be, seldom are, and usually never will be. Now I'm going to say that again. It didn't get the response that I wanted. Churches whose focus is on what they used to be, seldom are, and usually never will be. Almost three years ago now, when we first came here, I heard a lot of what this church used to be, and now I'm hearing from those who believe in what it can be and what it should be again. That attitude seems to be prevalent in many of our area cities as I visit and, and, and hear from pastors in neighboring communities. Uh, and, and it's not just in the church, it's, it, it's everywhere. I remember a time when as a youngster, my mom and dad would take me and drive to either Liberal or to Dodge City or to Garden City because those places had such a nice downtown shopping area. I, I remember that. I, I remember Remember Saturdays when my parents would take me to Garden City to stay that night with my grandparents so that they could get me to Sunday school on time on Sunday morning. And, and on those Saturday afternoons, after my folks would deliver me to my grandparents at about 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, we would head downtown where we would park on Main Street and they would just walk, watch people walk from store to store. Just people watching. Things have changed. All the old familiar stores are gone. I'm a member of a Facebook group called If You Grew Up in Garden City. And just this last week they were posting pictures, and perhaps some of you who remember Garden City, remember the Woolworth store across from which was Ben Franklin's store, J.C. Penney's and Anthony's, and just down on the other block was McDonald's, not the restaurant. It, it was a, a, a clothing store, privately owned clothing store, and there was also a Duck Walls, and there was even an Otasco. Now, some of you probably don't even know what Otasco stands for. <laughs> Oklahoma Tire and Supply Company. None of those stores are there anymore. 
they're all gone. All the old familiar stores, shopping has moved from downtown to the malls, and now most even those malls are, are pretty much vacant. Shopping now focuses on Walmart or Menards, the few shops, the few department stores remaining in strip malls, and worst of all, people watching no longer exists. As a matter of fact, rather than people watching, you try to get away from all the people at Walmart. I constantly hear, my point in all of that is, I constantly hear about how things used to be. Whether it's in places of commerce or within the church. But here's the truth. Whether good or bad, focusing on the past ruins the present and it destroys the future. Someone in the church said it this way, what we need is some new converts and new families. That'll set the church on fire. I say, no. What we need is some fire, and then we'll have some new converts and new families to our church. I've heard it said in some churches, why aren't we seeing people saved? Perhaps they should consider whether or not God would entrust them with new people getting saved. I, I, this is nothing new. The great evangelist Charles Spurgeon once said it this way, to put new converts into most churches is like putting live chicks under a dead hen. He said it, I didn't. Well, today as I bring this sermon series to a close, I want us to once again examine not only all that we've discussed about the importance of the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst, but what it would take for us to become a church on fire. I want you to go back with me, believe it or not, to the book of Genesis chapter number 22. Genesis chapter number 22, and I'm going to read only the first 14 verses. The story is much longer than that, but I'm not going to take the time to read the entire story because I can make my point with the 14, first 14 verses. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now, do you find it strange that Abraham didn't argue. It just says, so early in the morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey the boy and I will go over there to worship, then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand he took the fire and the sacrificial knife, and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father, and he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? 
Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He then bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a man caught, I uh, saw a ram, I'm sorry, not a man, a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. What a story. Abraham taking his son Isaac to the mountains to become a human sacrifice. Now, we need to understand the context, and this is the rest of the story. Remember that the son, whose name was Isaac, the son born to Abraham and Sarah as, was born as the result of a miracle. You see, when he was born, Abraham was 100 years old, and Sarah was 90 years old. And all of this time, they had been waiting on the son that God had promised to them, and yet that son had not yet arrived, and now their physical bodies were well beyond childbearing possibilities. And so, again, as a test of faith, God sent them a miraculous son, even in their old age. Isaiah, you can read about that in Genesis chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. The, the promise that God had made to Abraham was that his, his very lineage, in other words, those, the offspring of his family, would number as the stars in the heavens. And yet, no son had arrived. Well, we, we know that God miraculously provided Isaac to this elderly couple, well beyond their childbearing years, and he's now... A lot of people think that Isaac in this story is a small child. But if you do the, the math and, and you, you, you go back and, and do the, the uh, math to figure out how old Isaac was, you'll find that Isaac was somewhere around the age of 23. A grown man. So he takes this 23-year-old son on this particular morning, having been awakened by God, and God has a test for Abraham. He says, now keep in, keep in mind the promise, your, your lineage is going to number as the stars in the heavens. But God tells him, Abraham, get up and go to a place that I'm going to show you and there sacrifice your only son Isaac, whom you love, as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I'm going to tell you about. And, and again, I, I, I can't get over that. Amazingly enough, According to the scriptures, Abraham does exactly as God has told him to do. 
And he takes Isaac to do as God had commanded him to do. They arrive at the prescribed location. And good old Isaac, he's 23 years old, but he hasn't even thought of the possibilities. He hasn't yet realized that he is to be the sacrifice. Isaac was old enough to know that there had to be three things in order to have a sacrifice. There had to be wood, there had to be fire, and there had to be a lamb. And verse 7 told us that Isaac said to his father Abraham, and this is my translation, uh, Dad, we have the fire, we have the wood, but where's the sacrifice? Now just so I don't leave you hanging, as we read in the scripture, miraculously God provided a ram caught by its horns in a thicket, and he did it just as Abraham was ready to thrust a knife into Isaac's throat and make him the sacrifice. Now this entire story is designed to help us understand that God was testing Abraham's faith. Would Abraham obey God even though Isaac was the only offspring to carry on his lineage? Well, when God saw that Abraham was committed to obey even if it meant slaying his only son, God provided the needed sacrifice. Now here's why I'm telling you this story. Now, some 4,000 years later, as we look at most churches in the world today, we ask a very similar question, just slightly different. We have the wood, we have the lamb, but where's the fire? We have the wood, we have the lamb, but where's the fire? And by that I mean we have the wood, we have the cross of Calvary. We have the Lamb, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, Jesus, who died on that cross. But where's the fire? Well, the fire can be found in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And we desperately, desperately need it. Let me talk about the church for just a moment. Uh, Belinda gave me a, a magazine to, to look through here just a couple of weeks ago. And in one of the articles, I found some amazing, amazing current statistics that I want to share with you. And when I'm talking about the church, I want you to understand I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about the corporate body of the church, the body of Christ around the world. According to those statistics, it takes 40 believers on the average one year to win one person to Jesus Christ. Uh, let me restate that. You might be able to better understand it if I say it this way. For every 40 believers, one lost person is saved every year. You mean no reaction? Like, oh. One person saved for every 40 believers every year. What's missing? The fire. And it's the fire both in the pulpit and in the pew. On a much larger scale, consider this. 
If we could this morning freeze the world's population so that no one else was born and no one else died, and if every Bible-believing church in the world kept winning souls at the current rate that they are, it would take 4,000 years to win the world to Jesus Christ. Do you think we need the fire? So what are the characteristics of a church on fire? That's the title of my message this morning. We have an example of an on-fire church given to us in the New Testament book of Acts, chapter number 4. So I'm going to take my points for this message from uh, Acts, chapter number 4. If you have your Bibles or if you have your Bible app, um, hopefully you can uh, access it and, and follow along with me. But Acts, chapter number 4, and I want to just share with you uh, a couple of verses from Acts 4 to use as my my main text. It begins in verse number 31. Now remember that the Holy Spirit has fallen. Peter has preached a message. And he and the rest of the apostles are preaching the gospel in obedience to the great commission that Jesus had given to them. Last week we talked about Peter and John going to the temple and there encountering a man who was begging. And they said, silver and gold have we none, but such as we have, give we, give we give to thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And the beggar, for the first time, rose to his feet and began to walk and to leap, praising God. But now we see that Peter and John have been arrested. In the early part of chapter number 4, they have been forbidden to speak or to preach in the name of Jesus. In response to that, Peter, has gone, Peter and John have gone back to their local church where they've asked the church to pray that the Holy Spirit would give them boldness to continue to preach the name of Jesus. In verse number 31, in response to that, it says, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. My first point, a church on fire is given power from on high. That starts with the pastor. It starts with the pastor. If you go back to verse number 8, it tells us that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, and then he begins to, to talk to them and preach to them. Verse 31, we read, it said, as a result of Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit, what Peter had to say to them caused all the people to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need Holy Spirit power to fulfill God's purpose, and nothing can be accepted as a substitute for that. 
We can't depend upon man-made excitement to get the job that needs to be done, done. And the same can be said of programs of promotions and publicity. I was thinking about that in relation to what I wanted to say to you. And uh, how many of you have ever listened to one of those great black preachers preach under the anointing of the Holy Spirit? You know, we don't need Doug to sit up here on the organ. And every time I hit what I think to be a high point in my message, have Doug do a cute little riff on the organ to get us fired up. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I kind of enjoy that when I listen to those messages. Don't do it, Doug. I'm not ready for that yet. <clears throat> but, <clears throat> but, but here's my point. Nothing can substitute for the power of the Holy Spirit upon a church. Nothing. The Apostle Paul tells us about his own preaching. and He, he, he tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter number 2, verses 4 and 5, My speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might be, not be based on men's wisdom, but on God's power. What a great statement. Boy, I, I wish every pastor of every church would be able to stand in his pulpit every Sunday morning and proclaim those same words. It's not by power. I, I mean, it's not by program. It's not by proclamation. It's not as a result of publicity. It's as a result of the Holy Spirit in genuine empowerment that will cause a church to be on fire. My so-called wisdom, if there is any. My preaching. From time to time, those tear-jerking illustrations. And even more rarely, my funny stories will not bring fire to our church. Only power from on high. Charles Finney, who was the great revivalist back in the 1700s, told about a church in a certain town, a church where the fire had totally gone out, no one was being saved, and even worse than that, no one even cared that no one was being saved. No one cared except for one man, and it was not the pastor. It was the town's blacksmith. He wasn't much of a talker. In fact, Finley said he stuttered so badly that it was painful to have to listen to him speak. But this blacksmith had a heart for God. And he wanted the fire of revival to ignite his church once again. And he was so burdened for the fire to fall that one day he made the decision to close the doors of the blacksmith shop to go home and to pray for the rest of the day. The next day he went to the pastor at the pastor's office and he said, Pastor, I've been praying for revival, for God to rekindle the flames around here. Can we schedule some kind of a meeting, some kind of a revival? Well, the pastor grudgingly agreed to do so, but with a warning that if he did, no one would come. I've kind of sensed that same thing myself on occasion. But the pastor said, we'll have the revival. So they had the revival meeting, and to the pastor's surprise, the building was full. 
He stood up to preach just as he had always done, but he felt very different on this occasion because the power of God was so strong in that place that everyone in the room could feel it. Dozens of people were saved. That night, the fire was reignited. Why? It wasn't methods. It wasn't programs. It wasn't activities. It wasn't organization. It wasn't because they sang songs that everyone loved during the song service or because they had a projector to project the pastor's outline on a PowerPoint screen. It was because somebody prayed. Somebody prayed down the power. Verse 31 began with this precursor. When they had prayed. Nothing. Hear me on this. Nothing. Not a child who is born. Not a, a supernatural move of God in a church will happen without a great deal of travail or labor. It's not going to happen. You ladies understand that probably better than us guys. A child isn't born without labor, right, Ashley? Why do you keep doing it again? No. Disregard that. George, cut that out of the recording, if you, if you would, please. <laughs> Nothing happens without travail. When God is working, when decisions for Jesus are being made, you can mark it down and take it to the bank. Somebody has paid the price and prevailed or labored in prayer. Are, are you beginning to get the idea it's not about us? It's about trusting God to do what God promised He would do. And that happens as we access the presence of God in prayer. Can I just tell you something this morning? God wants us to have revival more than we do. He does. And the better news is all we have to do is ask for it and do what's necessary to make it happen. And it won't be programs. It won't be organization. It won't be planning. It won't be some cute little gimmick. It will be as the result of the power of the Holy Spirit bringing that revival. You see, prayer always leads to growth. Now, I want you to understand something about growth. Growth isn't always in numbers of people that characterize an on-fire church. Sometimes God's plans are beyond our understanding, and He has something different in mind like spiritual growth. Wanting those of us who are already here to grow spiritually. As a matter of fact, again, as I thought about this for a while, I'd rather have a handful of people on fire gathered in the first couple of rows during a church service than to have a full house cold enough that you could hang meat in. Amen. One day on, while on vacation, the evangelist D.L. Moody visited a large, dead church in London, England. 
The pastor begged, the man, begged Moody to preach there in that day's services, the morning and the evening service, but he, he didn't want to, but after continual pleading from the pastor, Moody agreed to do so. So he preached and later said that the congregation was so unresponsive, it was all he could do to get through preaching that morning's message. But just as he was about to conclude his message, it all of a sudden occurred to him that he'd have to endure the same thing that evening because he agreed to speak in both services. And he dreaded it all afternoon. After all, he was on vacation. But behind the scenes, something was going on that Moody wasn't aware of. An elderly woman that was in the service that morning went home to her invalid sister and told her that D.L. Moody had preached in the morning service. Her sister's eyes lit up, for she had been praying that God would send D.L. Moody to the nation of England. She told her sister, she said, put your lunch away. Let's go spend the rest of the afternoon in prayer and fasting. And they did. Moody said he stood up that night before the same people, but he could tell that something was different. It was alive with the electricity of the power of God. He said that you could feel it in the air, and he preached with unexplained liberty, gave the invitation to stand up if they wanted to be saved, and 500 people stood to their feet. Oh, but that's not the end of the story. Moody was shocked that 500 people stood to their feet. He thought maybe they had misunderstood what he had asked. So we asked them to sit back down. Now he said, I'm, ex I'm saying to you, I only want you to stand up if you want to be saved. If you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And this time even more than 500 stood up to their feet. It was the beginning of what became the greatest revival that ever swept the nation of England. Why? Because of two old ladies. One of them bedridden. They said, we don't need more organization. We don't need more activities. We need the power of God in this place. And they paid the price in prayer. What happens when a pastor and a group of people are endued with power on high? Well, one, souls will be saved. If you read the entirety of the book of Acts, you will be able to add up at least 8,000 people in the city of Jerusalem saved in the early days of the early church. 8,000 people came to belief. Understand this, friends. Three months prior, most of the people in the city of Jerusalem were hailing for Jesus to be crucified. Now, three months later, the Holy Spirit has come. The apostles are preaching the good news that Jesus is not only raised, uh, has been crucified for the sins of the people, but that he's been raised from the dead. And something is so different that the first service caused, th caused 3,000 men to be saved. And over the course of the rest of the book of, the A of Acts, and this is all we're told about, we can determine that at least 8,000 were saved in the early days following Jesus' resurrection. So, a church on fire will have souls being saved. Secondly, 
A church on fire will have inspiring worship services. The music, no matter whether it's your preference or not, will be uplifting. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 19, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music to the Lord in your heart. Jacob, you want to add life to our song service? It's not done by speeding up the tempo. Not necessarily. It's done by being filled with the Spirit of God. You know, we could hire Hillsong, Jacob. We could hire Hillsong to come and lead our worship. But that won't bring the Spirit into our worship services. We could have the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir on the platform every Sunday. And it still wouldn't help. We could have the best sound equipment. Utilize an orchestra. Why, folks, you could even get a new pastor. But until you're endued with power from on high. Until. You'll never know what a worship service can be. I want to see our worship services be expressions of the Spirit of God moving in our midst. Lord, just lift us to that level where we experience your presence. We know beyond the shadow of doubt that it's you that's filling and charging the atmosphere. The third thing that will happen when a pastor and his people are endued with power from on high is that our missions will be divinely appointed by God. Now, listen to me closely. In Acts chapter number 8, you'll find in verse number 29 that the Spirit of God directed a man named Philip to go minister to an Ethiopian eunuch. Now that's pretty specific. This is what I want you to do, Philip. And Philip responded. Then you go to Acts chapter 13 and you find in verses 2 through 4 that the Spirit of God told the church in Antioch to set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for, uh, Barnabas and Saul or Paul for the work that I called them to. And this became known as the start of Paul's first missionary journey that would eventually lead to the gospel being spread throughout the southern Asia region of the world. You see, God is specifically directing their mission efforts. You go to Acts chapter number 16, or actually Acts chapter number 15, verse number 40, clear through verse 10 of Acts chapter 16, and you'll find there that the Holy Spirit directed Paul to choose Silas and Timothy for what would be his second missionary journey. One that led to the gospel being spread throughout the continent of Europe. Why is that important? Because part of the continent of Europe is the country of Spain from which Christopher Columbus sailed to come to America. The results, long-term results of Paul's second missionary journey was that the gospel was spread to the entire continent of Europe and eventually came across the Atlantic Ocean to where we are today. Spirit-directed mission work. Each of these instances, the Holy Spirit divinely directed their missionary work. Fourthly, when a church is endued with power from on high, divine wisdom will accompany all the church's decisions. 
Maybe I need to say that again. Divine wisdom will accompany all of our church's decisions. Now, this is in no way saying that we haven't been using wisdom in making our church decisions. What this is saying is we want to make sure divine wisdom guides all of our decisions. (laughs) You see, churches need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to guide everything that we do. Go with me to Acts chapter number 15. I want to read just one verse for you. Verse number 28, where it says this, For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours to put no greater burden on you than these necessary things, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. And if you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. What directed their decision-making? The Holy Spirit. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. We don't need man's wisdom. We need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to guide us. Trust me when I tell you that I can personally attest to the tragedy that many churches do not act in the wisdom of the Spirit, but act in what seems right to men. And the end results are disaster. It was the wisdom of men that resulted in the church that I call my church home. Splitting twice after I became a young adult. That church was divided so deeply by decisions made in the wisdom of man rather than in the wisdom of God. Who wins when that happens? I'll tell you who wins. The enemy. Uh, A lot of the people that split off of that and went their own way, formed other churches, they're saved. But there were a lot of people that were not on that side or that side, but were in the middle that tragically came to the conclusion, if this is what church is about, I don't need it. Let me tell you what, friends. If indeed there are those people that I just described, when we stand before Jesus, Jesus is going to say to us in some way, shape, or form, if you would have used my wisdom rather than falling on your own wisdom, perhaps those people could be in heaven today. We need the Holy Spirit's wisdom. But let me move on. Let me talk about the result when a pastor and his people are not endued with power from on high. The result is always the same. Burnout. Your fire will dwindle to a flickering flame, a small spark, and eventually on the, wor- on the verge of being snuffed out unless somebody fans the f- coals and on their knees searches for some type of kindling to keep the fire going. Serving God becomes a chore. It becomes a burden if you do it in the energy of the flesh rather than doing it with the endowment of power from on high. This is how we have to serve God in the energy of the Spirit rather than the energy of the flesh. And that way it's not us trying to make something happen, but it's allowing something to happen to us and through us or sometimes even despite us. God wants to move. A church that's on fire, secondly, with God's power, is equal in position. Verse number 24 of Acts 4 that we read from speaks of the unanimity in which they prayed. They were in one accord. 
Verse 32 says that the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were all pulling in the same direction. They purposed to lock their arms together toward a common goal. No one being given preferential treatment regardless of their social status or church position. There were no cliques formed. They understood that the ground at Calvary was level. That no one had a, had a closer position from which to access the cross. They weren't focused on what one another was doing or not doing because they were too busy looking at what Jesus was doing. Listen, friends, if we want a church on fire for God, we have to have common goals. We all have to join hands in equality and unity. Now here's why I say that, and I want you to hear me very carefully. It's easy for church people to magnify their importance. <laughs> By that I mean that they feel so indispensable that they deserve special treatment, special privileges, special consideration of their opinions, and special recognition for the things that they do for the church. I've known people who left some of the churches that I've pastored, and upon their leaving, they fully expected and told this to people that once they were gone, the church would die out. Let me tell you something, friends. When God decides to build a church, nothing can prevail against it. Usually when someone leaves with that type of attitude, what I've discovered and what I've seen happen is that the church will grow because God will send double or triple the number to replace them. This problem of magnifying your own importance can happen to anyone in any church, but more often than not, it usually develops in the heart of the leader. And friends, let me tell you something. Pride has taken down many great preachers, some of whom I'm personally acquainted Another danger, in addition to magnifying our importance, is minimizing our importance. This attitude of unfaithfulness which says, it doesn't matter if I'm at the church or not on Sunday. It doesn't matter if I'm there for the worship team or not. It doesn't matter if I'm a good steward of my finances and give to the church or not. It doesn't matter whether I attend the annual business meeting or not. Oh, that hurt. That was, that was a low blow, Terry. Let me tell you something, friends. The greatest ability is dependability. Anyone can be faithful, but some will go to the grave saying, no one's going to tell me what to do, and you're right. No one should. But if you're walking in the power and the anointing of the Spirit of God, when He tells you what you ought to be doing, and He does it in such a way that makes, it, makes you believe that it was your idea, you'll do it. He wants to guide us. Don't minimize your importance to this body. There's something for each of us to do and little is much when God is in it. So just be faithful. Another danger in addition to maximizing our importance or minimizing our importance is to misplace our importance. This is simply trying to be something that God never intended for you to be. Can I just explain it this way? And God, God help me. I want you to just hear my heart. You've seen this happen. I, I've had people in my churches that were constantly clamoring to me to sing a special even though God hadn't give it, gifted them in that way. 
How do I know if I have a certain gift from God? It's very easy. You don't just find it out on some spiritual giftedness test. It's very easy to find out if God has given you a gift to use for his kingdom. You know what it is? If you have that gift, other people will give you the gift of listening to you. Bless her heart, there was a dear little lady in my church in Salina, Kansas. She came to me and she said, I want to sing this evening. And her and her sister and their mother were, were just on the fringe. They were considering coming and being a part of our church. And so I caved. I, I learned a lesson. I learned a lesson, but I caved. And I said, sure, you go ahead and sing this evening. And Jacob, I'll never forget the song that she sang. Every time we sing it up here, I think of her. She sang more love, more power. And she needed more of each. I had people sitting on the front row who the, the pain was so bad they had to put their head between their legs so that they didn't have to listen to it. What I'm talking about, friends, is don't misplace your importance. God will give you a gift to use. But just because you don't have the gift that someone else does, don't attempt to use it for the kingdom. If God has given you a gift, He will reward you by giving you the gift of people listening to you and responding to you for the kingdom of God. Do you still love me after all of that? My rule is this. Seek God for the spiritual gifts that He wants to use you in. Everyone should desire to use their spiritual giftedness for the kingdom. Be what God intends for you to be. And nothing more. And that will gain you a crown of righteousness. And I'm closing. And how many of you are thankful for that? <laughs> Lastly, a church that's on fire for God is not only endued with power and equal in position, but is always without exception evangelistic in priority. And I pray that we're all on board with this one. It's very evident as you bring people to church and you witness to people on the job that that's the very best outreach that a church can have. Outreach that is lived by its people as they go through their daily lives. Now you may not recognize this name. The man's name is Vance Havner. And he is known for a very famous quote that I'm sure the majority of you have heard from time to time. His famous quote is that a church is to be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. Well, Vance Havner also said something equally more important but not nearly as well known. He said evangelism is to Christianity what veins are to our bodies. You ought to be able to cut a true Christian anywhere and they'll bleed evangelism. <laughs> I love that. It's all about the kingdom of God being added to. There's a lot of lost people out there, friends. We should major on evangelism. That's like a doctor majors in healing. Evangelism is the business that we are in. And the best remedy for a sick church is to put it on a soul-winning diet. How do we do that? By letting the power, power and the fire of the Holy Spirit characterize our coming together. I know you've heard enough anecdotes here this morning but I'm going to give you a couple more the great Baptist preacher R.G. Lee said it this way 
God never intended for the church to be a refrigerator in which to preserve perishable piety. He intended it to be an incubator in which to hatch converts. TFC is to be a hospital for sinners, not a rest home for saints. We're to be fishers of men, not keepers of the aquarium. And that's all the adages I'll give you. But seriously, friends, that's why Jesus left us here. If you're still here and you're not already home in glory this morning, God's still got a purpose for you. He's still got a plan for your life. And when we forget that, we lose our fire. And I close with this thought. It's what we started with eight weeks ago. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. Jacob, worship team, would you come please? Practical characteristics of a church on fire. I, I want to say this to you as, as we contemplate closing this sermon series and finding some time to just experience the presence of God in our midst. When we come to an altar or we come forward to a place to pray, we're not coming for any other reason other than to pray for one another. That's one. Two, to receive what God wants to give us individually and corporately. When we come forward, we come for no other reason than to receive healing in whatever way that we need it. When we come to an altar, we come oftentimes to receive restoration of a relationship with Jesus that's been damaged or a relationship with our brothers or sisters family situations relationships between you and the church and trust me when I tell you as a pastor I've seen many people whose lives have been damaged for years as the result of something that happened in a church so when I give an invitation to come forward, it's not so that we can come up here and have any presupposition of what's going to happen if the Holy Spirit falls. The whole goal is to get what you need from God today. Whether that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, whether that's healing, whether that's restoration. It's a sign that we're serious with God. And Lord Jesus, this morning as we conclude this message and we conclude this sermon series, I think it's very obvious to everyone who has been here or everyone who has listened to these messages on the podcast that we want what happened at Pentecost 
to happen in our lives today. Lord, what happened at Pentecost is you launched your church into the soul winning business. And you did it by making them effective with the power of the Holy Spirit leading them and guiding them. Taking taking mere man's words and supercharging those words with the power of the Holy Spirit. Preparing the fields in which those words were sown to receive that word in a different way than it had ever been received before. And those whose hearts were represented by those fields were compelled to respond in saving faith and came to be your, your, a part of your kingdom. Jesus, this morning... We want to see your spirit move in whatever way he desires in our midst. God, I know that there are people sitting in this room who need physical healing. There are relationships represented in this room that need the touch of your Holy Spirit to bring restoration and grace and peace to unsettled situations. So Holy Spirit, what happens in the remainder of this service this morning is up to you. You're here this morning and you know that God has something for you. And you want to make your make yourself a candidate to receive it. These altars are open. Would love to have the opportunity to pray with you, pray for you. And there may be those of you who just want to come to pray for someone else whom the Lord has laid upon your heart. That's the way the Holy Spirit works. So as we stand to our feet this morning and we begin to sing this song once again, we're asking for the reign of the Holy Spirit.